This morning, the question is, how do you summarize the Bible? How do you summarize this thing? You know, the remarkable thing is that even though the Bible is 66 books written by about 40 different authors over a period of at least 1,000, probably more like 1,500 years, it does tell a single unified story. And so today, we're going to do two things. First, we're going to summarize the Bible in just four words, and then we're going to even go even further than that, we're going to summarize the Bible in one word. Okay? So, got it. It was loose. Okay, so here's the four words. If you think about the story of God like a play in four acts, the Bible could be summarized in these four words creation, fall, rescue, restoration. That summarizes the entire story of God. Creation, fall, rescue, restoration. So let's think about, let's just talk very quickly about these four things because I really want to get to the one word. That's what my ultimate goal is this morning. But let's just talk about these four, these four words. Act one, creation. We read in Genesis chapter one and Genesis chapter two, at the very beginning of our Bible, God creates the world. And he makes this world Perfect. He says it's very good. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's very good. God loves what he's created. He puts man and woman in the Garden of Eden and it's all very good and, and God has fellowship with, with mankind in a very intimate way as he walks with Adam and Eve in the Garden. He, there's this uh, perfect relationship. God is present and there's no sin. Everything is great. Uh, the man and woman are naked and not ashamed. This is innocence that's there. It's, it's perfect. This is the way God designed things to be. But that doesn't last very long, only two chapters. Uh, and then what happens is Act 2, the fall. The fall. We come to Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve are tempted by Satan. They take of the fruit of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that God instructed them not to eat from. They eat from it anyway, and a desire to be like God, and a desire to... Uh, to have the, God's knowledge, being tempted by Satan, being lied to by Satan in the form of a serpent. Um, <clears throat> and there's a consequence for that sin. There's a consequence for that sin. And God pronounces a curse on them and on, the, on, on Satan. And immediately uh, this, this sin disease takes hold in, um, uh, in, in, in people and also in all of creation. So all of creation is affected by sin. It's not just that our relationship with God is affected, it is, but also all of the created universe begins to deteriorate and fall apart and there's disorder and there's chaos and there's killing and there's violence and there's all these things that happen as a result of, of sin and fallenness and brokenness. As we talked about this morning, as Andrea said about brokenness, we're all broken and the world is broken. That's all the result ultimately of that first sin that's happened and then it says in Romans that, uh, that through Adam and his sin, now sin has spread to everybody. And so we're all affected by this, this reality of sin. So that's Genesis chapter 3 and of course all the way through to today. But then we have this rescue plan. Acts chapter, or sorry, uh, in the, 
this act three, uh, the rescue plan that God initiates. So creation fall, but then God initiates a rescue plan. And he sets this in motion immediately. And starting in Genesis 3.15, as he's pronouncing this curse on Satan, he gives this little, there's this little uh, paragraph in there that, that theologians call the Proto-Evangelion, which means the first gospel, the first announcement of the good news. And that is this curse upon Satan that says to the, sa- to the snake, I will put enmity between you and the woman, Eve, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, that is, the offspring of Eve, and this is, this is all pointing ahead to Jesus, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, if you imagine that, this is a strange thing, but what, what this is getting at, what, what God was saying here, is that one day, there's going to be something that happens where a son of Eve, Jesus, is going to stomp the head of Satan. Okay? Yeah, just make a point around. Alright, just making a turn. Alright. No problem. I didn't know if you had something to tell me. <laughs> it's like that old trucker song, Give Me 40 Acres, just to turn this rig around. <laughs> Alright. No problem, brother. Alright, so... so uh, so Jesus is going to stomp his head and, and Satan is going to bruise his heel. So yes, Jesus, that's referring to the crucifixion. Jesus one day will be crucified. He's, he's going to get his heel bit by Satan. But Satan's head is going to get crushed. Right? So this is, a, this is a, uh, an early, the very first pronouncement of this future rescue that's going to happen, this gospel that's going to happen, where Jesus is going to be crucified and Satan is going to be defeated. And, and all through the Old Testament, we catch glimpses of this plan unfolding, this plan to restore humanity back to right relationship with God. We go into Genesis chapter 12 and we see God's promise to Abraham, where he, he begins this nation of Israel. And he, he says to Abraham, he says, I will make of you a great nation. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is part of the very first covenant that God makes with man. And he makes it with Abraham and he says, In you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Again, from the very beginning, this is all pointing ahead to the rescue plan that God has in place. That from the seed of Abraham, that a Jewish man, Jesus, will one day through his actions bless the entire world. And that's exactly what would take place when Jesus would come to save us all. The Old Testament tells the story of Israel and all through that makes many promises and predictions about the Messiah, the Savior who would come, exact details of His birth, His life, His death were prophesied and recorded in the Bible centuries before they happened. The whole Old Testament is God preparing the way for this person who would be the Savior of the world, the focal point of all of human history. And then Jesus comes on the scene. So we're still in Act 3 here, rescue. Jesus comes on the scene. God in the flesh, the long-awaited Messiah, the one alluded to over and over and over through the Hebrew Scriptures. He comes. He lives. He dies on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. 
and he rises again over death, triumphant. God's rescue plan, long promised, finally has come to pass. And this is the point in the story where your story interacts with the story. This is the point in the story when you recognize that not only was this rescue plan a rescue for people in general, but it's a rescue plan for me. That when I accept and believe and trust in what Jesus Christ did on the cross, that it rescues me from my sin. And that I can have a relationship with God and I can receive eternal life. It's a rescue plan. It's a very personal rescue plan as much as it's also a global rescue plan. That's Act 3. Then Act 4. Act 4 hasn't really happened yet. Act 4 is restoration. We're still in Act 3 here. But Act 4 is coming. The future promise of Jesus' return. God will heal this broken planet. He will restore it back to an Eden-like heaven on earth. No more tears, no more pain, no more suffering, no more conflict, no more war. All of these beautiful promises of heaven that await us are coming to earth one day as Jesus, when Jesus comes back. <clears throat> so that's the whole story of the Bible in four words. Creation, fall, rescue, restoration. This is God's, uh, God's story. This is how it's all laid out, and this is what's going to happen. It's all good. Pretty simple. But we can simplify it even further, I believe, as we come to what is the Bible all about? What is it all about? Well, this is the story. But if we were to summarize the Bible in one word, the Bible is about Sunday school answer. Hey, you got it. (laughs) You could have predicted that. The Bible is about Jesus. Several years ago, um, we, Julia and I, came across this awesome resource called the Jesus Storybook Bible. This is a great kid's Bible. If any of you have grandkids and you're thinking, I'd like to get them a Bible or a gift or something for their birthday, this is a great, great resource, the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's so cool. And the, the, um, the subtitle for the Jesus Storybook Bible is, Every Story Whispers His Name. I'm just going to read for you. Uh, from chapter 1 in the Jesus Storybook Bible, just a a snippet of it. It says this, The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything, to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all of the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there is a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle. The piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly, you can see a beautiful picture. And this is no ordinary baby. This is the child upon whom everything would depend. This is the child whom, who would one day 
But wait, our story starts where all good stories start, right at the very beginning, dot, 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 and then it gets into creation. Cool, I love that. The Bible really is the story of Jesus. We often call the Bible the Word of God. The Bible calls itself the Word of God. Um, But the Bible also calls Jesus the Word of God. The Bible calls Jesus the Word of God. He is literally the Word of God. He is the ultimate Word of God. He is the ultimate, most authoritative revelation of God to mankind. We're going to read a few different scriptures this morning, and if you have a Bible, you can turn there. Um, And we're going to start in John chapter 1. And uh, I've used this scripture many, many times. But it's so good. It says this, John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, He, this is so it's talking about a person here. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Right from the very beginning of the story, there's this Word. And we find out that Word person is Jesus. In verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the living, breathing Word of God in human form. If you go down to verse 18 in John chapter 1, it says, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is Himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father. That's the Trinity, folks. That's a, that's a pointing to the Jesus, the fact that He is God and He's yet not the Father, right? It's like weird. We get, get hard to make sense of, but it's true. And so this is a, this point of the Trinity. The Son, who is Himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made Him, has made God known. Now it says no one has ever seen God, and that's not actually true. If you go through the Old Testament, uh, you see stories where people catch glimpses of God, right? Moses and different people that they catch, they they do have these little experiences where they they see God sort of, and it, and it's like this amazing, profound experience. Um, but what what John is writing here to us is saying, you know what? Those people may have caught glimpses of God, but no one has truly seen God until now. Until Jesus. Jesus truly makes him known. Where God was mysterious, Jesus has revealed the fullest revelation we have because he is God in the flesh. He has made him known. If we go to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1. In the first three verses, it says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. This is the Old Testament. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His 
power. Man, Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God. What previous, God, previously God's revelation came through the Old Testament and we got a, a, an understanding of who God is from the Old Testament He revealed. But now, now that we have Jesus, we have a fuller revelation. We have the exact imprint of God. People wonder, what, you know, what's God like? Well, look at Jesus. And there's your answer. If, you, if, the, if your image of God in your head, uh, or based on your interpretation of Scripture, doesn't match the nature of Jesus, then you need to recalibrate your view of God back toward the nature of Jesus. Because Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God. Man, that's really important that we get that. Because a lot of people read the Old Testament and they go, I don't like this God very much. This God seems nasty. This God seems retributive. This God seems vengeful, filled with wrath. When we come to the New Testament, we read Jesus, and Jesus seems very compassionate and caring and gentle. Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God. So interpret the God of the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus. That's what I'm trying to say this morning. Jesus is the best, it's the best representation of who God is. He is the ultimate, perfect revelation of God. If He is the Word of God, then the Bible really is all about Him. So then, the question is, as I've sort of alluded to already, what do we do with the Old Testament? What then of the Old Testament? Now, I like to make Star Wars references as much as possible. Uh, These are scenes from the prequel series of Star Wars. So, was anybody around and went in the theaters in 1977 when the original Star Wars came out? All right. You know what that means, right? Yeah, that's what that means. Um, but then in the 90s George Lucas had this great idea of let's make some prequels that that, uh, set up the story that tell the story before the story and and I'd like to think that the Old Testament is sort of like the prequel to Jesus it's the, it's the story that sets up and helps us make sense of the main storyline, which is the story of Jesus of Nazareth. And it all points to him. It's all telling the story that's leading up to him. In John 5.39, Jesus himself says, The scriptures bear witness about me. The Old Testament, when Jesus said scriptures, he meant the Old Testament. It's giving us the context and setting up the story. It's about Jesus. According to Jesus. Go to the next slide, please. About uh, 2,000 years ago, on a Sunday morning, these two guys were walking uh, on a road away from Jerusalem toward a town called Emmaus. And they were dejected, they were discouraged, they were heading home, uh, after Jesus had been crucified. They had been following Jesus. They, they had their hopes set on Jesus. Uh, and then Jesus was killed by the Romans and they just, they, they got deflated. They, so this is, the movement is over. So they pack up their things and they start heading home to Emmaus, leaving Jerusalem. Well, they didn't get very far uh, until a man approaches them on this walk and has a conversation with them. They didn't realize it, but we know because we get to read it, um, but they didn't realize the man was Jesus. 
the resurrected Jesus. That morning, that very morning, Jesus had risen from the dead. And the resurrected Jesus meets them on this road and he has a conversation with them. And those of you who are doing the Bible reading plan, you would have just read this in Luke chapter 24. And in Luke's gospel, as he tells this story, it says this, verse 27. Uh, <clears throat> it says, Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus has this conversation with them where he basically goes through the entire Old Testament and points out how it's all pointing towards Jesus, how it's all about him. He interprets them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself, starting with Moses and the prophets. When it says Moses, it really means the law. Moses was the person who wrote the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, or the law. And the prophets, this is the major prophets and the minor prophets. Um, and so when the Bible says Moses and the prophets, or law and the prophets, it's basically a shorthand way of saying the Bible. They're Hebrew scriptures. And so Jesus basically explained the whole Bible to them and how it was all pointing to him. So the law and the prophets, the content of the Old Testament, let's just talk about that for a second. If we were to sum that up, we could say that God gave Israel the law for the purpose of making his people Israel holy, set apart, so that they would worship God alone and live justly toward their neighbors and one another. That was sort of the purpose of the law. Well then, of course, we know in the story that they're not so good at keeping the law. Um, and so they continually sin and break the law. And so God sent prophets to come along and to call Israel back to, back to the law, back to worshiping God alone and away from idolatry and living justly toward their neighbor and one another. And so when you hear law and prophets, it's talking about those concepts. It's talking about the Old Testament and all that's contained in that. Uh, and all of that is a shadow of the greater reality, which is Jesus. The Old Testament is like a shadow. And Jesus in the New Testament is the substance. The Old Testament is like a road sign pointing us to our destination. And the destination, the actual place, is Jesus. And shadow versus substance is not my terminology. This is the terminology that the New Testament uses. Hebrews 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good thing to come, good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. In other words, the Old Testament law really la- it does not have the power uh, that, it, that, uh, that Jesus has. It, it never really has the effect uh, uh, of, of cleansing people and setting them into right relationship with God. It's only a, it's only a shadow of that um, that's pointing towards the true form, the reality, the substance, which is Jesus. If you go to the next one, the next one is uh, Colossians chapter 2. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. In other words, in the Old Testament law, you know, that had rules about what to eat and what to drink and the Sabbath and, and, and all these, you know, the, uh, the, the Jewish festivals and the calendars, the feasts and all these things. Uh, let no one pass judgment on you on those things. If you choose not to do those things, that's okay. This is what Paul is saying. Because these were a shadow of the things to come. There's nothing wrong with those things, but they were just a shadow. They were pointing to the substance. The substance belongs to Christ. Now we have the better thing. 
The Old Testament foreshadowed the main event. The incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus and His eventual return in glory one day. The Old Testament is the opening act, the prequel for the main event. In 2004, uh, Billy Gra- the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association uh, put on a festival in Halifax. And some of you might have gone to that. Some of you remember this. Um, and Franklin Graham came and spoke. This was before Franklin Graham was a really controversial figure. Um, and, uh, and he came and everyone was excited. And Jars of Clay was the headlining band. This was a big deal for Halifax. I remember it well because I was in the band Life Support at that time. And uh, they, this event was so big that they needed to do, do it in, both in Halifax and in Cape Breton. They didn't have enough room in the Metro Center for everyone. So they rented Center 200 in Sydney, Cape Breton as well, and, uh, and they filled that as well with people. Um, but they also wanted to have uh, local, uh, local bands uh, to do some music before the satellite feed came in from Halifax into Sydney, Cape Breton. And so they asked our band to play for this thing. And we were so excited. This was the biggest thing we'd ever done before. We were the, we were the opening act for Jars of Clay and Franklin Graham. Right? This was so cool. And we get there and the place is packed. Right? It's awesome. It was such a cool experience. Um, but as much as it was a big deal for us, the truth was those people weren't there for us. <laughs> right? Uh, we gave it our all. We rocked hard. It was great. Um, Julia came. She was there for us. We were just dating at that time, just newly dating. She was our only true fan who was there. Um, But the arena wasn't packed to hear life support. The arena was packed for the main event. The Old Testament is the very good, excellent, important, necessary opening act for the main event, which is Jesus. Jesus is what it's really all about. So do we throw out the Old Testament? Do we ignore the opening act? Do we skip over the prequels, no. We don't throw out the Old Testament. But we do have to understand it in light of Jesus who fulfilled it. We recognize that the Old Testament is God's inspired word. It is rich and informative. It reveals aspects of God, of God to us. It is useful and powerful, as it says in First Timothy, or Second Timothy. First or Second Timothy. Uh, which one? Norm's looking it up for me. <laughs> 2 Timothy 3.16, I think. Yeah. Um, That's referring to the Old Testament. So it's good, man. It's good. It's good. It's good. But it pales, it pales in comparison to Jesus himself. 2 Timothy 3.16, yes. As we've already said, Jesus, Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. The Old Testament is the shadow. Jesus is the substance. And Jesus himself said that he fulfilled the Old Testament. Matthew 5. Here we go into another scripture. Matthew 5, 17 to 18. As Jesus gives his Sermon on the Mount, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. We're not throwing it out. It's still good. I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, but to fulfill them. He has come to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus completes the Old Testament. He fulfills it. 
And he does accomplish what it set out to do. And one day when he comes back, he will ultimately accomplish all of it. If the goal of the law and the prophets was for God's people to be in a right relationship with God and with neighbor, it is Jesus who makes that possible and who shows us the way to be, human, be the human beings that God designed us to be. Jesus is the fullest and most authoritative revelation of God. He is the fulfillment of the entire Bible. So, to answer the question, what is the overarching theme or storyline of the Scripture? The answer is simply Jesus. Every story whispers His name. Menno Simons, who is the uh, person who inspired the Mennonite church. Uh, by the way, when you think Mennonites, a lot of time we immediately think old order Mennonites, which are the people who you know still do the horse and buggies and stuff like that. That's only one little branch of the Mennonite church. The Mennonite church is also very modern, contemporary church like the Baptist church. And the Mennonite theology is excellent, uh, by the way. Uh, I, I've told people many times, and it's still true, if I wasn't a Baptist, I'd be a Mennonite. Um, great theology in the Mennonite church. Menno Simons said this, all the scriptures both the Old and the New Testament, on every hand, point us to Christ Jesus, that we are to follow Him. So what does this mean for us? So what? Obviously follow Jesus. But it means in large part that as New Covenant people, as New Testament Jesus people, that we are not bound to the Old Testament law. This is really key because there's, not everyone agrees on this. Uh, and you might disagree with me on this, but I, this is my, interp- this is my, so I say, what does this mean for us? This is what it comes to me. We are not bound to the Old Testament law. It means that we are to follow the commands or the law of Christ, not the 613 commands of the Old Testament law. When Jesus gave us the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, he said, go and make disciples of all nations. Go and, and, and lead people to Jesus. Help them become his followers. And what are we supposed to teach those new disciples to do? Make disciples of all nations. Teaching them what? Teaching those new disciples to obey all that I, that Jesus has commanded. He doesn't say, teach them to obey the law of Moses. No, he says, teach them to obey all that Jesus has commanded. When we were visiting Israel, and I know time is, is running out, but uh, I just want to show this picture. It's kind of hard to see the way it appears on the screen, but you can see a hill there, a faint outline of a hill in, in the mist there. This hill. So we were, we were standing uh, this, in, this June in Israel, and we were at Megiddo, right? Um, this really amazing archaeological site, Megiddo. And you're looking out over this valley of Jezreel. And our tour guide... Uh, he's, as we're looking out over, over this valley, we can see these three hills in the distance. This one's the one in the middle. And he says, so the first hill over on the left, he says, okay, that, that hill over there, that's where Nazareth is on, is on that hill, Jesus' hometown. He says, the far hill over on the right, that's, uh, that's the hill where King Saul uh, died in battle, where he c- committed suicide and fell. Uh, King Saul back at the time before King David. Um, and the hill in the middle here, that's the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus was transfigured. And then over here, we're like, wait, hold on a second. What did you just say? Did you just say that that's the Mount of Transfiguration? That's, that's where Jesus and his, his disciples, yeah, that's the Mount of Transfiguration. And then over here is, whoa, like, that was a mind-blowing experience. This is the hill. So I snapped that picture. I'm like, I got to get a picture of that because that's so cool. That's the spot, most likely, where it happened. 
So what is the, what is the Mount of Trans, what is the Transfiguration all about? It's one of the most incredible stories in the Gospels. And right in the middle of Jesus' ministry, between his baptism and his crucifixion, he takes Peter, James, and John up on this high mountain. And, uh, and, 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 and they go up there, and in this instant, Jesus is, 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 the Bible says, transfigured, that he's sort of transformed, that there's this thing that happens, and he starts glowing and shining, and lights, lights blasting from him, and, and it's like his divinity, his divine nature is being put on display. The, the glory, the Shekinah glory is shooting out of Jesus. It's like this amazing thing, right? And then it says that Moses and Elijah appear, now, I don't know how they knew it was Moses and Elijah because they didn't have pictures or anything. But anyway, somehow, maybe a little symbol showed up beneath it and said, this is Moses and this is Elijah. Anyway, so Moses and Elijah show I often wondered about it. Do you ever wonder about that? You just say, well, how do they know it was Moses and Elijah? But anyway, maybe he goes, by the way, I'm Moses. Anyway, um, <laughs> Moses and Elijah appear and, they, and they're talking with Jesus. And Peter and James and John are just, it's, it's, we don't know what Peter and James exactly all, but we know that Peter was losing his mind. Like this was the most mind-blowing thing ever that, that they've ever seen, ever. And, and so Peter is just like dumbfounded as to what to do. And why, why Moses and Elijah, by the way? That's a good question. Moses and Elijah. Moses, as we've said already, represents the Torah, the law. Elijah represents the prophets, the law and the prophets. So this is, again, these are the two towering figures that represent the Old Testament. The law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah, and they appear with Jesus, and they're talking with Jesus, and Peter is losing it. And it says, in, so we go to Mark 9, where this, we have a, one of the accounts of this story. And this is what Peter, uh, his suggestion. So it says, Mark 9, uh, verses 5 to 8, says, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here, yeah. Let us make three tents, little tabernacles, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. It says, for he did not know what to say. <laughs> for they were terrified. He didn't know what. Uh, how about this? I got an idea. How about we make a tent? We'll put up tents. Jesus, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And we'll have these three tents here, these three tabernacles. And well, this, will be a, this will be the place of worship, and everyone will come here and, and worship you guys. And this will be like the new temple. This is going to be so amazing. Oh, God. Oh, this is, wow. Like, he's, you know, he's freaking out. Um, and then a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is, this is the same sort of experience that happened at Jesus' baptism where God speaks and says, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And then they come down off the mountain. Now, the voice from heaven, God, the Father, as he spoke, I think that was a bit of a rebuke to Peter. Uh, Peter, you want Moses and Elijah to stay. You want the law and the prophets to be put on the equal playing field here with Jesus. He's like, yeah, we've got Moses, we've got, Moses, we've got Elijah, and we've got Jesus too. This is cool. We've got all three. And, but... Peter, don't you see that Jesus is so much better? Peter, Peter, look what's right in front of you. This is not a mere prophet. This is not a mere mortal lawgiver. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. 
I, I wish we had an audio recording and we could hear where, where God puts the emphasis, right? He was like, listen to him. But I think he says, listen to him. Listen to him. Listen to Jesus. It's not about Moses and Elijah anymore. It's not about law and the prophets anymore. Listen to him. And then what happens? The other two guys disappear and Jesus is only there. Just Jesus. I think this isn't just a cool thing that happened. I think this says a lot about the glory and divinity of Jesus, and I think it's also an illustration for us of Jesus' ultimate and final authority over the Old Covenant. Amen. God is saying, the time of the New Covenant is here. The time of the New Testament, the new way, is now. Hebrews 8, I know i got so much here, but Hebrews 8 There are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve as a copy and a shadow. There's that terminology again of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, the the tabernacle, the place of meeting, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old. As the covenant he, Jesus, mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. And then this key verse in Hebrews 8.13, in speaking of a new covenant, the implications in this are huge, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So, Long story short, it all boils down to this. For God so loved the world that he gave us his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Know and follow Jesus. The Bible summarized in one word is Jesus. All of the scriptures are about Jesus. They're all pointing to Him. He is, the, he is the summary of it all. He is the fulfillment of it all. And just as the Scriptures are all about Jesus, so should we be. We should be all about Jesus. Jesus, His life and His teachings are the center of our Bibles and they ought to be the center of our lives. Close with this story. Theologian Karl Barth He's lecturing in Chicago at one point in his ministry uh, at a university. And at the end of his lecture, a student gets up and says, Dr. Bart, could you summarize your whole life? This is a true story, by the way. I double-checked. Could you summarize your whole life's work in theology in a sentence? Now, you would expect this theologian, one of the great theologians of the time, to stand up and give some great theological statement how do you summarize your whole life's work in theology in a sentence? And his answer was this. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you. Oh, Jesus, we praise you. We thank you, Jesus, that you have come. You have revealed God to us, the exact imprint of the nature of God. Thank you that we can know you and know the Father through you. God, you are worthy of all of our praise. You're so good. We thank you for the word that points us to Jesus. We thank you for the, the truth that, uh, of, of all that is contained within him. 
And we pray, God, that our lives would be centered on Christ, that our church would be centered on Christ, that all that we think and do would revolve around Jesus and His way. And God, if there's anyone here this morning who has never placed their faith in Jesus for the first time, if, if you know, as we think about that, the, the story of, of creation and fall and rescue and restoration, Lord, and they're maybe in that stage where they've never... Uh, They've never been rescued from the reality of their sin. I pray, God, that today might be their day. Lord, I pray that you would convict their hearts and speak to them by the Holy Spirit, God, that they would see Jesus for who he is, that they would surrender their lives to him, fall in love with him, commit to following him. May that be true for all of us as well. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Amen.